Our scripture lesson is taken from John chapter 11. I'll begin reading at uh, verse 16, page 1,237. One, two, three, seven, page 1,237, John 11, beginning at verse 16 and reading through verse 8 with particular attention to verses 28 through 48. John 11:16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things, Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, this chapter brings to a conclusion the seven great miracles that the gospel writer John records for us in his gospel. Of course, Jesus did many more miracles than just seven, but John focuses on seven miracles in particular that show the great glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. The first one was the changing of water into wine. The second, a healing from a great distance of an official's son in Capernaum. The third was the healing at the Bethesda pool of a man who had been paralytic for uh, 38 years. Uh, fourth was the feeding of the 5,000. The uh, fifth, the calming of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. The sixth, uh, just prior to the raising of Lazarus, was the healing of the man born blind, to which the crowds uh, here make mention. Uh, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind uh, uh, prevented uh, Lazarus from dying? And then uh, the last, uh, of course, is this uh, climactic event of uh, Jesus, the raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead. A couple of these signs, particularly the water to wine and the calming of the sea, were uh, directed uh, especially to Jesus' inner circle to uh, confirm their faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They had come to that faith, and Jesus performed a couple of miracles uh, for the inner circle to help confirm that faith and strengthen that faith. But uh, the rest of the signs were generally uh, public signs, like the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, uh, the the blind man, of course, uh, attracted a lot of healing of the blind man and the paralytic were in Jerusalem and uh, attracted a lot of attention. And uh, now we uh, read that there are great crowds come from Jerusalem to uh, comfort Mary and Martha. Uh, So uh, these are public uh, events. And they produced uh, basically two kinds of results for Jesus. Then number one was that uh, the the public miracles attracted a lot of attention and a lot of created a lot of interest in Jesus, a lot of enthusiasm for him. People uh, wanted to follow him. They uh, liked what he was doing and uh, were uh, hopeful that he would indeed help them, help them in a material sense, uh, help them uh, physically to uh, overcome their sicknesses and so forth. And perhaps uh, help them politically. After he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king so that he would uh, lead in a rebellion against Rome and so forth, so that re- restore Israel to its independence and former glory, something on everybody's mind. Even uh, when uh, Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, the disciples said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? You know, uh, That's what they wanted, and uh, they were hopeful that Jesus would do this for them, that he would improve their lives. Uh, the other reaction to uh, Jesus, of course, was that of the Jewish leadership who were jealous of the crowds that were following Jesus. They considered themselves to be the leaders, and they wanted people to look up to them and respect them, and they thought that if Jesus becomes the focus of attention, it would hurt their position. And they were especially fearful that Jesus would attempt 
a revolution against Rome, and uh, they thought that if that were to happen, Rome would come and crush them, uh, a very uh, intelligent assessment because that's exactly what happened 40 years after uh, Jesus's ascension. Uh, the zealots, not Jesus and not Christians, but the zealots led a revolt against Rome and Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and uh, it's never been the same since for the Jews. And so the, the Pharisees were, were fearful of that and determined that they needed to do something to get rid of Jesus. Now I point this out that, that both reactions, that of great interest in Jesus, that he's going to do something for us, which wasn't genuine faith. Uh, the Bible says uh, in a couple of places they believed in him and then goes on to say, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew them. Uh, he knew that this was a temporary or temporal faith. It was only uh, a selfish kind of faith. What will Jesus do for me? Uh, that's one result of the miracles, and the other is that it created opposition among those who could not deny the miracles. They knew that he was doing miracles, but they said, oh, well, yeah, he's doing it by the power of the devil. So they, they didn't contradict the miracles. They just said they weren't uh, good things that were happening because it was happening by the devil's power. Well, I, I point that out because uh, there are some people uh, today who think that, you know, if we only had miracles, then... Uh, that would change everything. In fact, there was a minister in the 1980s by the name of John Wimber, I think in Colorado, who started what was known as the Signs and Wonders Movement or the Vineyard Movement. And he was convinced that modern evangelism was ineffective because it wasn't accompanied by signs and wonders the way the apostolic ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders. And so he was all for promoting supernatural gifts and performing miracles and so forth. Uh, it didn't come to much, especially since he suffered from uh, heart disease and stroke and, and uh, died of a brain uh, uh, bleed at age 63. Uh, lots of people were praying for him for his various mal maladies, and uh, nobody had the power to heal him. The, the miracles they performed were never the kind of miracles that uh, we read on the pages of Scripture. It was all things that would uh, be easily explained by other uh, purposes. But some, some people, and maybe some of you are thinking, you know, if, if there were only a miracle, it would, uh, it would help me make up my mind. Maybe you haven't uh, made that, that ultimate commitment yet. Uh, you're still sitting on the fence and wondering, uh, uh, will I, uh, should I uh, believe in Jesus? Should I profess faith in him? And you say, you know, if I could see a miracle, that might uh, help. Well, uh, miracles don't have that power. They, they can confirm faith but they were never what was used of God to uh, create faith. What creates faith, of course, is his word and uh, uh, the work of the Spirit accompanying the word. Well, now, in this chapter, we want to, or uh, in this section of this chapter, we want to take note of a couple of things. We want to take note of the emotions of Jesus, and we want to take note of his uh, great power, the revelation of his motion and the revelation of his power. And there are three emotions that uh, Jesus displays here. The first is compassion, and then uh, anger or righteous indignation, and uh, thirdly, uh, sorrow. Uh, his compassion is seen in that uh, Martha goes to uh, Mary 
and says, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Now, we, we don't hear Jesus say that to Martha, but we can assume that Martha is not lying about this, that indeed uh, uh, Jesus gave instructions to Martha to go and tell her to come because I want to talk with her. Uh, Mary and Martha are the sisters of the man who died. They are the chief mourners. They are the ones who feel most intensely the grief of their brother's death. And Jesus has talked to Martha. Martha got up when, as soon as she heard Jesus was on the way. Uh, she ran out of uh, Bethany, out, of, out onto the road and to, to meet the, the party that was coming with Jesus. She wanted to see him as soon as possible. And Jesus did comfort her and encourage her. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever dies, even though he dies, if he believes in me, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Uh, those were great encouragement to her heart, but he gave those words to, to Martha personally, and now he wants to deal with Mary personally as well, and so Martha goes uh, secretly uh, to try to avoid the, the crowd so that Jesus can have some one-on-one -on -one time with, with Mary uh, and uh, says, the, the, the teacher is calling for you. Well, those, are, those are beautiful words. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Jesus would send a message, I'm, I'm calling for you. Well, he has. <laughs> He issued that invitation in the Gospel of Matthew, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And He wants you to come, and He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to get up out of your chair. He wants you to, to, to get out of where you're feeling comfortable and easy and, and come to Him. That's, that's part of the call to worship that the elders issue every week because the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as, as some are doing. Uh, coming to church is, is part of what it means to, to come to Jesus, to come to the teacher because He's calling for you and He has a word of comfort for you, a personal word of comfort for you. You know, it's, we're created in the image of God and Part of that means that we are social creatures because God is, is a trinity. He's three persons who live together in close communion and fellowship in, in a bond of love beyond our ability to comprehend. But, but nonetheless, we are created in the image of God, and that means we're meant to be social. We're meant to come together and to come to Him and one of the ways we come to him is to come one another to one another because uh, he's the head and we're the body. We're the body of Christ. And when we have contact with each other, we have contact with God because Christ is in us. You know, it's not for nothing. It's not just out of habit that, that when you come into church, there are greeters who don't just greet you verbally, they greet you physically. They put out their hands for, to shake hands. And, and after the service, uh, the elders are there to, to shake your hand, to touch you, to have physical contact with you. You know, when we had COVID restrictions, uh, we resorted to, to fist bumps because we just felt intuitively there's that need, that human need to, for, for touch, for coming together because we're meant to be together. I don't want to lay a guilt trip on those uh, who are in the nursing homes or uh, who are, uh, by God's uh, providence, incapable uh, for physical reasons to, to come to church, but that just lays a burden on us who are ambulatory to, to go to them 
because everyone needs that, that physical contact. You know, I, I visited uh, Nellie Van Wyck a number of times, and one of the first times I, I visited her, I, uh, I prayed for her, and when I, when I started the prayer, I laid my hand on top of her hand, and uh, she surprised me by uh, grabbing my hand and squeezing it and holding on tight. And when I said amen, she said amen, so I, I knew she knew the prayer was over. Uh, she was very hard of hearing, but uh, uh, she, if I shouted really loud, she, she knew when the prayer was over, and she said amen, but she didn't let go of my hand. <laughs> and I, well, what am I supposed to do here? She's holding on tight. Well, I, I let her hold my hand, and, and for a while I just sat there and, and in silence, and, and she held my hand. She needed that physical contact, and every other visit I would go there, I'd let her hold my hand because she wanted that physical contact. I had a laugh when we went to, uh, to uh, uh, Ecuador. Uh, when they uh, came to church on Sunday morning, they were all giving each other fist bumps. But right after the fist bump, they would open up their arms and hug each other, you know. Uh, we, we're social creatures. We're meant to come together. And Jesus says, come, come to me. And that means come to church and come and be with my people and, and hear my words of comfort, personal words of comfort for you. He is a God of compassion, a God of comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. He's a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. He knows our needs and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is a compassionate savior. But he's not only a compassionate saver, we, we see that he has other emotions here as well. Because when, when Mary does come, uh, she expresses faith in him. Uh, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that's not an accusation. That's not an accusatorial thing. Uh, she, she's saying, I still believe in you, even though you, you didn't come and, and, and he's dead. I accept that as, as, as now an accomplished thing, inevitable, that can't be undone, but I want you to know that I still have faith that if, if you had been here, you, you would have done something. Uh, not, not perfect faith. Uh, she should have uh, believed that Jesus could do more now, uh, but uh, her faith is no different than Martha's because later on in this event, when Jesus says, roll the stone away, it's Martha who objects and said, no, it's, it's, don't do that, Jesus, you know. Uh, it's going to be a bad smell and so forth. Martha doesn't think Jesus can do anything now either, so both of them are, are, have a, a low view of the power of Jesus. And uh, Jesus sees her, her weeping, and he sees the Jews who are weeping, and we, we read that... Uh, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, that groaning is uh, uh, an emotional reaction, and uh, it's really the reaction of anger, uh, righteous indignation. Now, why do I say that? Where do I get that idea from the word groan? Well, I get it from the Greek word, not from the English word, although the English word does sort of imply that. If you see something, you that offends you, something that you dislike, something that's bad, you can groan inwardly, a sigh, or uh, uh, give out a, 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 some kind of expression of uh, frustration and so forth. Uh, but the Greek word here literally means to become indignant. Uh, 
when the Greeks used this word to describe uh, horses, uh, they, it was when a horse would uh, buck and snort in protest. Uh, when you try to get the, the horse to do something and it snorts in protest, they used this word. And uh, the word is, is even translated as indignant in uh, Matthew uh, chapter uh, uh, 4, excuse Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, where uh, a woman uh, takes a, an expensive jar of perfume and puts it on Jesus' head uh, for, uh, to anoint him. And it says that those who saw it were indignant and they expressed their indignation by scolding her, saying that could have been sold for a lot of money and the money given uh, to the poor. Well, that's the word that is used here. Jesus is, is sees something that makes him angry and indignant. And uh, we might wonder, well, why don't they translate that word the same way here? And uh, I'm not certain as to why the translators uh, didn't translate it uh, consistently with Mark 14, but uh, there's sort of a, a stary, stary decisis, is that the word, uh, the Latin phrase that we've heard a lot from the Supreme Court, uh, stary decisis? Uh, a history of tradition, uh, established tradition that uh, if you come along later, you don't want to upset it uh, unless you have a really good reason. Well, um, uh, there's some uh, tradition of uh, translation that translators are, are prone not to upset. Uh, there's also the fact that uh, some commentators, uh, older commentators, uh, wrestled with the idea of how does anger go with weeping? You know, how, how can you combine those two? And so let's just give it a more general meaning of he, he was troubled, you know, he groaned in, and was troubled in, within himself. Um, uh, the ESV Bible, uh, my favorite translation, does uh, have a footnote that says indignant. They, uh, they've introduced the idea in a footnote and maybe 20 years from now they'll uh, put it in the text as well as uh, the way things go. But nevertheless, that's what's going on here. Jesus is indignant. He, he sees something that, that troubles him. And the, verse, the word is used twice. It's used in verse 33 and it's used in verse 38. And in verse 33, he, he sees Mary weeping and he sees the, the mourners weeping. And in verse 38, he sees the tomb. Uh, what is causing his indignation? Well, it's, he sees the, the tomb, which is the symbol of death. He sees the weeping that has come about because of death. He, he's angry at, at death and all the grief and the sadness that it has produced because this isn't what he what he intended for mankind when he created us. He created us and put us in paradise to, to know him and to love him and to be with him in ever-increasing joy and glory. And that was uh, the, the destiny of mankind uh, according to creation. And then we willfully destroyed it all by rebelling against him and, and brought upon ourselves uh, his just wrath and the curse uh, of sin, the curse because of sin. Uh, we brought this misery on ourselves, and he, he sees it, and it, it makes him angry that this has happened. Uh, why then does he weep? Well, maybe you can understand this if you imagine, and some of you don't have to imagine it, you've experienced it yourself, that someone you love, someone you love very dearly, someone very close to you, does something really bad. And uh, uh, something so bad that it brings shame on, on that person, it brings shame on, on everyone connected with that person. And 
you, you, hear, you hear of it and, and immediately you're, you're angry. Oh, why did he do that? You know, that's so stupid. Why, why I, I, I taught him better or I, I had a, better expectations for this person than, than that they would do this. You're angry, but you love him. And because you love him, you grieve at all the pain and misery that he's brought upon himself and upon others, and, and you, you weep for him. You know, we see that with regard to Jesus in Jerusalem as well, not just uh, in this situation, but uh, he, he pronounces in Luke's gospel, days of vengeance, days of vengeance that are coming upon Jerusalem for all the blood of the prophets uh, that they have shed. And then... He weeps for Jerusalem and says, how often wouldn't I have gathered you as a hen gathers her, her chicks under, his wing, under her wings. And, you know, he, he's angry at, at, at sin and death and all the misery that we've brought upon ourselves, but because he has a heart of compassion as well, he, he weeps for us. It's important to see that these two things go together. God is a holy God, a just God, who is angry at sin, but he is also a loving God, and therefore he weeps. He takes no delight in the, in the death of the wicked and so forth. And because we're in his image, we too have these same kinds of emotions, although our emotions are often corrupted by sin. Our indignation is not always so righteous, but uh, nevertheless, we need to be careful that when we do become angry at the presence of sin, that, that we not do it apart from a heart of compassion as well, because if, if all you are is angry, it will lead to uh, harshness, it will lead to uh, cruelty, it will lead to all kinds of uh, uh, bad things, uh, arrogance and, and pride and so forth, like uh, Lamech descended from Cain, you know, he, he defended his honor and uh, so forth. But uh, uh, we also need to guard against uh, compassion without anger because compassion without anger leads to a weak and ineffective sentimentalism that uh, holds no one uh, accountable for his or her actions. Uh, we often see that in uh, churches that... Uh, pronounce themselves as non-judgmental. I was uh, in a church uh, recently and uh, sitting in the pew for uh, an organ recital and picked up uh, a brochure that was uh, in the pew and the church advertised itself as being non-judgmental. Uh, we, we don't judge people, you know. We, we don't exercise discipline in this church. We, we have compassion for everybody. Well, that, that's just weak sentimentalism and uh, uh, we need to be like God and uh, be righteous, uh, righteously angry, but also temper that anger with uh, compassion because it's when those two are joined together that Jesus is motivated to uh, strong remedial action that brings help and hope to those who are in, brought trouble on themselves. Well, Jesus displays these emotions, his compassion for Mary, desire for her to come to him that he may minister to her and he sees uh, death and all the misery and he is angry but he is also moved to tears and moved to action and his action is in the display of great power 
Let us consider this power that he displays here. First of all, we, we take note that not only did Mary and Martha not believe that Jesus could do anything for their brother now, but the crowds had the same thing. They saw his tears and they, they said, uh, uh, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Uh, he could have saved him if he had been here on time, but, but now it's too late. Uh, they, nobody believes that Jesus can can raise the dead here and now. And uh, so he, he goes to the tomb and, uh, and uh, filled with anger, uh, he says, uh, roll the stone away. Uh, he uh, wants to uh, let them uh, know that he can do more. Now when he does that, they, uh, they protest, uh, you know, there's a bad odor. Uh, Jesus probably stayed away for a specific purpose so that that would indeed be the case. You know, there was a, a Jewish uh, superstition that has no biblical grounding, but nonetheless was uh, something that the rabbis speculated about. Uh, a Jewish uh, superstition that when a person died, their spirit lingered near the body trying to get back into the body until the body began to decompose. And then it was no use, and so then the spirit departed. And uh, some have speculated that Jesus waited until the body had decomposed so that nobody could say, oh, well, the spirit was trying to get back in the body anyway. Uh, Jesus isn't confirming that, but he's saying, uh, in case you think that, uh, I want you to know that that's not the case, that what has happened here is a dead man has been uh, raised. Uh, Lazarus was really dead, to uh, paraphrase the uh, the coroner of Munchkin Land. He was positively, absolutely, undeniably, and reliably dead, not merely dead, but most sincerely dead. He was dead beyond any shadow of a doubt. And Jesus called forth, Lazarus, come out and uh, come forth. And uh, that word alone was uh, sufficient to bring him out. That word reminds us of John 5, 25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Or John 5, 28 and 29, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. It has often been remarked that if Jesus had not specified the Lazarus, uh, he would have emptied all the tombs uh, there on that day. But uh, he did specify Lazarus come forth and Lazarus did come forth. Jesus did this as a sign to display his glory and the glory of his Father because before he did it, he, he prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's, he's telling the crowds through this prayer that he had already asked God for this and, uh, if, and when it happens, they can know that the Father has granted it so that the Father and the Son are, are working together. In this, uh, the Father is with Jesus. Jesus is with the Father. He, he represents the Father in all that he says. He represents the Father in all that he does. And so this is the power of God at work. It's the power of Jesus who is divine at work, raising Lazarus from the dead. It is uh, a sign of uh, what we read in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He delivers us from the body of death, 
1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a sign. It's not the real thing. In other words, uh, Lazarus did die again, but uh, later on Jesus would show that he has the power also to raise people incorruptible, never to die again when he was himself raised from the dead and is still alive today at God's right hand. Death is something that you might be able to ignore for a time, but you will not be able to prevent your own death. It will happen to all of us. It will happen to me. It will happen to you sooner or later. And by raising Jesus, by raising Lazarus, Jesus is showing you that he has the power to overcome death to all who trust in him to deliver them from the power of sin and death. Ever since... uh, Uh, Jesus has done this. Uh, Christians have believed that indeed Christ will raise us from the dead. But uh, it's important to realize here that that this power extends to to all of life. Uh, If he has the power to, to raise from the dead someone whose body has already begun to decay, then he has the power to do anything that we need to overcome the effects of sin in our lives. For example, he can give you the power to overcome addiction, addiction to alcohol, addiction to pornography, addiction to eating disorders, or any other self-destructive behavior. You may say, oh no, I'm so far gone, there's no hope for me. Well, that's what they were saying of Lazarus. He's too far gone. He's begun to decompose. There's no hope for him. Jesus raised him from the dead, and Jesus can give you new life now also and renew you inwardly day by day, making you more like himself. He can give you the power to say no to sin and yes to him. He can give power to heal broken relationships, broken relationships between husband and wife, broken relationships between parents and children, broken relationships between neighbors or co-workers. He does that by giving you the power to, to deny yourself and to put others ahead of yourself. You know, what destroys marriages, what destroys uh, parent-child relationships and other kinds of relationships is, is selfishness. It's putting me first, saying, I have my rights and I have my needs and I need to take care of myself. You know, I I sometimes uh, read the advice columns that are are in the newspapers, uh, not because I'm looking for advice, but I want to see the kind of advice that is given. And and invariably, someone will write in about uh, some relationship problem, and and, uh, the advice columnist is almost always the same. Well, you got to take care of your own needs. No. No, the Bible says, if you seek your own life, you will lose it. And by selfishness, you are losing all sorts of things. You're losing your children, you're losing your spouse, you're losing uh, your, your job maybe, because you put your needs first. Learn from Jesus to deny yourself. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. And, and his power will begin to heal your personal relationships. He can give you peace of mind and heart, even in adversity, even in sickness, even in uh, terminal illness. Uh, He can give you peace and uh, comfort and much joy. He has the power to overcome death. He has the power to overcome all the, the grief and the sorrow that accompanies death. Put your faith in him and he 
will lift you up. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this display of great power by which Jesus overcame death in a man who had been dead for over four days. We pray, Father, that you would give us faith in him through your word and spirit. Create that faith and strengthen that faith daily. And may we look to you for the power, for that same power, the power that raised Christ from the dead to be at work in us so that we can say no to sin and yes to Christ, so that we can take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.